Hello, welcome to Biological Woman's Hour. This hour I am talking to MK Fain, who is one of the co-founders of the social network spinster.xyz. And as such, she is one of the many women creating spaces for women to speak about our rights uh, without the hindrance of tech censorship. Uh, here's MK Fain. Hello, welcome to the Biological Woman's Hour. Today I'm joined by MK Fain. Uh, she is the creator of Spinster. Um, so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's so Spinster is just really taken off. It was so necessary. Um, can you tell people what it is and, and why you did it? Yeah, so Spinster is an alternative social media site that is by and for women. It's a federated platform, which means that we can talk to a lot of other social networks at the same time. And it's essentially censorship proof because we are the moderators, we are the administrators. So I get to make the rules there and determine what speech we do and don't allow. And the other social platforms that we federate with can choose to either block us or not, but they can't shut us down. So it's really become a space where gender critical women especially can come to talk about everything going on with gender identity and trans ideology without fear that their accounts are going to be deleted like on Twitter or Facebook. Mm. And when did you start Spinster? Uh, I think it was in August, 2019. And how many users do you have now? Right now we have about uh, just over 16,000, I think. That's great. Yeah. It's great. It's, it's, um, it's intuitive. I think it's, it's very similar to Twitter, but it's, um, we can edit so I can, I can sort of delete, save my comment, repost without, which I love because I I typo (laughs) all the time. Yeah. Same. Yeah, it is. It's a really similar format to Twitter. So if you're used to Twitter, then I think a lot of it carries over really nicely. And it's spinster.xyz. Yep. Okay. Okay. So all women listening, well, and men, but mainly women. Um, it's, it is a great platform. Are men allowed, actually? Men are allowed. Yeah, we don't do any check about who you are when you joined. And we don't really have any interest in doing that anyways. But it's really, I mean, there are definitely a few men who are pretty active in the community. But it's honestly, overwhelmingly appears to be women and women have done a nice job, I think, cultivating a culture there that's very women first. And so men who do come on, you know, they tend to end up usually joining another instance instead that we federate with so they can still speak to the women, but be in a space that's a little bit more welcoming to them. Yeah. Who else, what else is in the Federation? What other platforms are in there? Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, there are about 4,000, I think, currently oh, okay. in the Fediverse. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the biggest ones that people know about are uh, Mastodon.social. So a lot of people have heard of Mastodon as this like Twitter alternative. And uh, But then there are other popular ones like Kiwi Farms has a uh, Fediverse instance. There are yeah. just loads of free speech ones. There are also loads of more like kind of SJW LGBT instances. So there's, you know, a whole range. Uh, another site that people might know of is Gab actually used to be on the Fediverse and then they chose to defederate. So there's like been a lot of people sort of coming in and out of various different politics. Yeah, um, I've I'm on Gab, and I tried to get one of their um, more expensive profiles, but it's since 
uh, Donald Trump since Parler sort of was canceled. Um, it's so slow. It's so slow. Yeah. Uh, it's impossible. Do, have you picked up any from Parler? Do you think your some of your users were also Parler users? So definitely on the Fediverse at large, I know a lot of people are coming over from Parler. I don't know about specifically on Spinster. I haven't seen a lot of people say that they came from Parler, but I definitely wouldn't be surprised. I, we did get a big uptick in general when all of the censorship started happening with Parler and uh, on Twitter when Donald Trump was banned. I think a lot of people were just looking for alternatives, not necessarily even conservatives or Republicans, just people concerned about the censorship that they were seeing and the big tech overreach. So we did see a decent uptick across pretty much all alternative platforms during the week surrounding that. And, and Kiwi Farms, um, I've read on there, uh, and I couldn't really understand it, about section, is it 230? And it's all to do yes. with publishers and free speech. And, and my gut is that I want free speech, but I also want Twitter to be responsible if they're kicking people off. I want them to be legally responsible for what is on there if they kick people off. What is the balance with free speech, publisher, and all that sort of stuff with Section 230? Yeah, so the way the Section 230 is right now is it applies across the board to any internet platform that allows user-generated content, essentially. So this includes both really big mainstream sites like Twitter and Facebook, but also small sites like Spinster and some of the even smaller Fediverse instances that maybe only have a small handful of people. So personally, I support Section 230 as uh, keeping it if we are going to do anything. I think there could be some form of uh, some reform that could happen, but I haven't really seen any good proposals. And this is because what would essentially happen if Section 230 was repealed is that platforms would be faced with two choices. The first is that they could moderate content and then be held liable for anything that they don't moderate, essentially or they could choose to not moderate any content and then they would not be considered a publisher and therefore they would not be liable. So what we would end up is essentially with two extremes uh, on either end. We would have platforms, and I think that Twitter and Facebook are likely to fall into the first category, that would just super heavily moderate everything because anything that could be a risk they would want to get rid of. And I think that we've seen so far that Twitter, Facebook, and most mainstream large platforms are uh, they really lean towards the side of moderation. I don't think they would use the repeal of 230 as an excuse to say, okay, we're not gonna moderate because we know that the people that run these platforms don't want certain content on there. Mm -hmm. And so what would actually happen is the largest platforms are likely to censor more if section 230 was repealed, whereas small platforms like Spinster, for example, and other alternatives, we won't have the resources to moderate to the degree that would be required or to fight the lawsuits that would come out of it. So we would have to either essentially not moderate Spinster at all. And keep in mind that this includes things like anything that's legal, we would have to allow. So porn, anything that's like violent uh, misogyny, as long as it's not a direct threat. So, you know, really graphic images. A lot of times we have people who come on and post things that are extremely graphic, but technically legal. And so we would have to allow all of that or be considered a publisher and then liable. And so what we would see is probably really small sites like Spinster. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we would shut down if there was a full repeal of Section 230 because we just wouldn't be able to stand up to the lawsuits that would come at us so quickly. 
And I know that it's a shame because I do want big tech to be held uh, responsible for what they're doing to our culture, I think is really toxic and damaging. But if we're going to do something with Section 230, I think it cannot be just a straight repeal. Um, I've seen some proposals that would maybe try to target platforms that are above a certain size or above a certain uh, user base or uh, annual budget or income. And I think that those are interesting ideas. I don't know enough about the details of those proposals to say whether I support them or not. But I think, you know, we can be against censorship, but we have to think about, well, what are the consequences going to be for the people who are trying to build these alternatives? Yeah, I mean, that does sound quite a good idea that when actually, I mean, if if you're being quoted by politicians, if politicians are using your platform, if the state is using your platform to reach its constituents, then I really do think you have a responsibility. Um, bias policies, I think, um, and I'm no conservative, but I do think the lack of conservative voices on these platforms is really concerning just for the just for freedom of expression and choice. Yeah, I think that uh, one thing I heard someone propose, I don't know about logistically how feasible it is, or honestly, even the freedom implications for individual companies to make a choice. But someone has proposed that, for example, uh, platforms that are considered uh, public forums to a degree because the politicians are using them to reach the people, because essentially if you're banned from these spaces, it's like being banned from speaking on a public street corner. Um, so some people have proposed that those spaces should be required by law to federate which would mean that if they were banned from Twitter, for example, then you could go on the Fediverse and still follow Donald Trump from a different instance, or still like he could go on to a different instance and still be heard by the rest of the world who chose to uh, like to allow his instance to come through. It's basically a way to take the power out of the hands of a single corporation and instead distribute that power to, in theory, anyone who can start a server, which right now does require a little bit of technical knowledge. But I know that there are people who are working on making it so that if you can, you know, just put your credit card into a website and then make one click, you could run your very own social media site that's available and federated to the rest of the world. I think in the future, everyone will have their own individual server and then we'll choose to block individuals and entire companies won't be able to block one person from the rest of the world. Yeah, maybe as a uh, owner of a social site, that sounds great. That sounds <laughs> horrifying to me that everybody just be online and everyone would have like their own servers. I mean, we're, we're diving so quickly into Black Mirror. Um, oh, yes, that's true. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the real question here is the whether we want to allow like pretty much everyone is online at this point. The question is just, do you want a corporation or someone else to control your speech online? Or do you want to be in control of your speech online? And it is it does become like a kind of annoying that the onus is on the individual then to like be responsible for managing their resources. Yeah. But it does put the freedom in the hands of the people. And so this is kind of the trade-off sometimes of freedom is taking things into our own hands and not relying on others to do it for us. Yeah. I, as an, as a, an owner, how did you feel about uh, the big man being banned from Twitter? What did you think? Uh, it's really difficult. I don't want... I yeah, don't want it's such mixed feelings. You have to <laughs> um, defend Donald Trump or think that he's a yeah. right 
man. I mean, honestly, my, my reaction is I thought that there were things that he said a long time ago that were much worse than what he was actually eventually banned for. It kind of seemed very arbitrary to me that Twitter was just looking for an excuse to ban him. I do think there was a lot of hypocrisy in which uh, world leaders these rules were applied to versus which they weren't. I mean, it was just also arbitrary. And I do not like Donald Trump. I never have and never will. And I honestly, you know, there's like this schadenfreude side of me that just really appreciated that like, ah, good, he's finally gone. Um, but I think that it was a real a real overstep on Twitter's part. I don't think a corporation should have the power to silence the president of the United States. And um, I mean, he was the elected president and before he was out of office, they shut down what had been his primary form of communication with the people of this country. And I know that he has many other avenues available to him if he does want to use his speech. But I, I think that whether or not you support Donald Trump, if you care about freedom, you can see that if this corporation can shut down the most powerful man in the world, then he can shut anyone down and there's nothing we can do. Yeah, I think one's principles are truly flexed when things that you would like to happen to people happen, but they're wrong. <laughs> and you can see actually yeah. that, uh, like you say, if it can happen to Donald Trump, it can happen to anyone. I felt the same about Alex, crazy Alex Jones. You know, when he was banned... It was like mm -hmm. all the social media controllers had a little meeting and said, let's just cancel Alex Jones. Now he is yeah. a crazy man. And I think the, the one of the funniest things I've ever seen online is where somebody's put his crazy rants to music. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen it, I will share it in the comments of this video. Okay. I'm angry. I've had enough of these people. There are bunch of Christian murderous scum There are giant death factories Keeping babies alive You're selling their body parts What more do you need to know about these people? I go out and face these scum <laughs> So good. But even him, he said the most preposterous, dangerous, awful things. But he didn't break any laws. And I just felt, you know, that's, that's, where, the, that's where the principle is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard. I completely agree with you that if you wouldn't be okay with it happening to you, then we need to defend this when it happens to other people. And I think that as women who are constantly targeted for our perfectly legal and I would say perfectly reasonable speech, we can see very clearly how fast that line just like devolves and can turn from targeting, you know, Alex Jones and his crazy conspiracy theories to targeting TERFs and their gender critical misgendering, you know, and the when we allow that line to be crossed, then it's not just the people we disagree with that are going to be harmed. It's going to be us too. It's going to be honestly anyone who's trying to do anything to change society because corporations want to keep the status quo because they are doing great under it. Exactly. So anyone who is trying to change things will be threatened by these uh, kinds of overreach. Yeah, how are you feeling in your post-Trump United States. How does it feel? So many mixed feelings. <laughs> Again, there's a lot of that going around. <laughs> uh, I'm very happy that Trump is out of office. Of course, uh, you know, I've always been a, a leftist and there are a lot of things that I've been concerned about, as, you know, regarding climate, regarding human rights, etc. that I 
you know, really am glad to see Democrats have the chance to take on. But of course, within his very first day in office, Biden signed an executive order that essentially erased women's sex-based rights as far as they apply to federal agencies in the United States. It is an unprecedented attack on women's rights in our country. It will allow men to be in women's spaces, including shelters and prisons. It will allow boys to compete in girls' sports. And it's so far-reaching. And uh, we knew that this was going to happen. So this is not really a surprise. But it is uh, really, I think, highlights the point that we're at in the United States where women are completely politically homeless. We can't trust the right. They're demolishing our abortion rights, even as we speak. In the past week, there have been eight different conservative states that passed uh, huge overreach uh, against our abortion rights. And then at the same time, the left is erasing our sex space rights and our single sex spaces. We, We are completely politically homeless. And if we didn't know it before, we sure know it now. Well, I I had a conversation with somebody who is pro-life, so I will I flag that as a as something that, and I'm very much not. I think that, uh, well, I've been accused of being pro-life on numerous occasions, and it's weird to not be pro-life and have these accusations. But um, basically, for some women, what it came down to was abortion rights or the right to define women in law. Uh, and my friend who's pro-life, who comes from, who is a pro-life, in, in a pro-life position from a woman-centered point of view, which I don't, I can't make sense of it, but that's her point of view. And she said that actually, because abortion ultimately eventually uh, also benefits men. I have not heard that argument before. I think it's, it's definitely interesting. I can see how abortion can benefit men. Certainly, if men don't want the responsibility of a child, then, you know, an abortion will benefit them. And I do know that there are instances where male partners will coerce their female partners who do want a child into getting an abortion, which is obviously just as big of a threat to reproductive justice and rights as uh, the inverse. But I am inclined to disagree, I think, on a whole that that is uh, that abortion benefits men, I think, I mean, to any degree, even remotely similar to how much it benefits women. Uh, as you know, I had two abortions when I was a teenager and it was, uh, I was in an abusive relationship. I had basically no control over my ability to use uh, condoms or, you know, any sort of birth control. And if I had not had those abortions, I know my life would have been essentially ruined. I I would have two children right now. I would be kept in the same cycle of poverty that my mother was kept in, that eventually, uh, you know, she had really serious impacts in her life because of this, eventually leading to suicide. And I see how being trapped in a cycle of having children and not being able to control your destiny when you want to, the impact of that on women, I think, is at such a scale. Like, women, women's role under patriarchy is that of breeder and mother. And I think that almost everything else kind of stems from that in a way. I see, you know, even things as like the pay gap, you know, the pay gap tends to not exist until childbearing 
happens. And then we see that men who have children continue to have raises in their salaries and careers, whereas women who have children with even the same men, like they start to decline in their uh, equitable salaries. So I mean, the consequences to not being able to control your destiny beyond just, you know, the basic principle of bodily autonomy and the threats to women's health, I think are so far reaching. We know that countries where women have full reproductive rights are countries where women have better economic outcomes. And I see economic outcomes as something that is just so predictive of almost every other aspect of your life. Your ability to leave a violent relationship is in 99% of situations of abuse, financial abuse is a part of this. If women have better economic outcomes, they can leave abusive relationships. If women have better economic outcomes, they can define their futures. And abortion rights, I think, is a key part of that. Now, that being said, I think all women come to these ideas from their own background and their own history. I come to it with, like I said, my own experience and the experience of my mother, which uh, really shapes a lot of my feminism. And so I don't think there's something wrong or that you're a bad feminist if that's not what your priority area is. I get it. I think it's okay if women focus on different aspects of oppression under patriarchy. But for me personally, it, it kind of is the the defining issue, I think, uh, of my feminism in a, in a way. Um, I would think that uh, yeah. reproductive rights is is really indicative of uh, the humanity of women and that the fact that the society in which you live sees a woman as a complete human um, that is allowed to decide whether or not she gives birth to another human. <laughs> However, it does <laughs> seem to be those countries that have also raced quick, most quickly over the line if we don't include uh, theocratic countries like Iran, but they've they've also run quickly to the finish line of of trans rights over women's rights. I mean, was it just an illusion that we had any sort of humanity in those in those spaces? Um, I think it's a couple things. I think we see pretty regularly throughout history a cycle of progress and then pushback. And I think that's really what we started to see happen in a lot of the like Western, you know, Eurocentric countries where we're seeing, you know, we started to have like really great outcomes for women. We had abortion access. We are starting to have some economic equity. And so then patriarchy was like, we can't allow this. And then, so then we get pushed back on a different way. And I I think that really this is just kind of a cycle. If you look kind of every 50 years, we have these different waves of feminism that come up and there's progress that comes out of that. And then in response, the men get very angry and they find some way to try to take back our rights in a different way. You know, first, well, not first, but, you know, the last cycle was around a lot of the kind of the second wave stuff that's really similar bodily autonomy, a lot of questions of that, a lot of questions on the rights of women to participate fairly in public life and in the workforce. And so we saw women in the 70s gain all of this progress. And then what we got was the sexual revolution in response. And so then in the like decades following, we ended up having just like, oh, okay, you want to be equal? Great. Well, like now let's totally objectify and sexualize you to a degree where like children are watching porn 24 seven and learning how to strangle women during sex at the age of 12. And so, you know, we had that happen and now women are starting to push back against this again. And then we have, okay, well, here's queer theory coming at you to take away your rights that you've gotten. I think it's, it's patriarchy. That's just constantly trying to find a way to push back. 
it's so insane isn't it because um we talk about ethereal concepts like patriarchy and i often think that they're not particularly useful to um outside of the theory and analysts kind of uh analysis sphere uh but in this sort of conversation very useful but what does it what does it look like so what does the patriarchy look like is is it the pushback that we feel is it uh, bubbling underneath is there just a contempt for women Yes, all of the above. <laughs> I think it's the general culture that both men and women are born into that I I think there might be some biological aspect, I don't know, but I think that mostly, you know, we're born into a culture that teaches contempt for women and boys end up going down a path today, especially where that involves objectification and sexualization where women are seen as essentially just, you know, something to screw and then someone to take care of them. And for girls, it, it's a lot of self-hate and self-loathing. And this is just, you know, the constant cultural messaging that comes at us. And for men, I think that, yes, that does translate into contempt for women who especially try to defy those expectations. You know, women who are gender nonconforming are met with great contempt by men because they're, you know, saying you don't like I'm not going to be what you want me to be because that what you've been taught that I should be. And then we have girls who are gender nonconforming, who hate themselves and are seeing that there's no place for them in society because they're not what a girl should be. And this ends up now with them transitioning because they need to be what society wants of someone and society doesn't want a gender nonconforming girl. Yeah, I've also, I think the the reverse of that or the, the other extreme are girls completely sexualizing and fetishizing themselves. Um, no better illustrated than the TikTok thing where uh, there was some sort of violent Netflix and then girls were showing pictures of their bruises um, on Twitter that their boyfriend had sort of hurt them during rough sex or, you know, he's so passionate. It was really peculiar. But this fetishization that girls... So are showing it off in a positive way? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, wow, you know, I didn't see that. You know, open mouth, kind of duck-piped... Um, look at my bruises and then they would be absolutely hideously large bruises of which I've, I mean, I've fallen a fair few times, but I've still never bruised as much as these girls sort of showing their bruises, which I think um, is insane. Insane. Yeah, no, you're right. It's that it's the other end, the women who try to just go with exactly what they think is going to get them somewhere with men. And in the end, yeah, they just end up getting beat up. Yeah. So how do we unravel that then? Obviously, uh, you're doing your bit by offering women a space away from that insanity. Uh, what do you think we can do to help young women? I think that being able to connect across generations is really important. Being able to show young women what the women before them have gone through. Uh, for me, when I was younger, reading just radical feminist writing from the generation before me, starting to see these patterns, starting to understand where this culture of sexualization came from, that was so eye-opening to me. I 
we are just living in a culture for the most part that, you know, we just go along with the waves. We're just kind of pushed along without any understanding of how we got here. So I think that these spaces where women can connect and consciousness raise, I mean, today it's hard to consciousness raise in person anymore, but if you can get online and share these histories, share these experiences, starting to make these little connections about, oh, this is what happened to me. And this isn't just a personal experience. This is a, a political one that has broader implications for women as a whole. This is what it's like to be this class of person that is female in this society. I think that this sort of eye-opening moments are so important for young women and the spaces for them to do that without being constantly harassed and hounded by men are really important. Yeah. Uh, you and I are both part of Wolf in one fashion or another. Um, what do you think, American women, how are you going to fight this uh, erasure? Yeah, so we have already started with an action that is sending letters to the White House. We have over 1,500 people who have already sent letters to both uh the president and as well as to Vice President Kamala Harris asking that on behalf of women, she intervene. And this is just within 24 hours here. So I think that we're going to be seeing a lot of actions about writing our representatives, calling our representatives, et cetera. But also importantly, I think that we need to remember that this executive order gave agencies 100 days to comply. So that means that every single federal agency, the Bureau of Prisons, Housing and Urban Development, Health and Human Services, all of these agencies are each going to be going through a process in the next 100 days to implement and create first and implement these regulations as directed by the executive order. That means that this executive order is not the end of it. We have 100 days of fight with every single one of these agencies that's going to be coming. So I think that you can expect to see as these agencies start to roll out what their plan is and start to make their, uh, as they're required to, some space available for public comment on these policies, we're all going to need to be banding together to take constant action in the next 100 days to roll back some of the most harmful aspects of these policies. I think that we can also expect to see, um, I imagine, I, you know, I can't say anything for sure, but I think it's likely that there will be some lawsuits involved. I think that it's likely that there will be some people who are trying to push different legislation. I think that it's likely that we're going to be seeing, you know, just a mass awakening to this issue and it raising the awareness of what the harm is to women of these policies on a, a mainstream scale that I don't think the United States has really seen before on the gender identity issue. Yeah, it's it's quite staggering. So just before I came on with you today, um, as I discussed before we uh, recorded, I was, I was just talking to somebody on a Facebook page who just sort of talked about inclusion. And isn't it great including trans people? And... I don't think that woman has actually sat and thought for a moment, that's a teenage girl in a shower where there could be a boy. That's a teenage girl not getting a scholarship to go to sports. That's a vulnerable woman in prison. That's a woman going to a domestic violence shelter. And we've seen pictures of men in these shelters and how they feel about it. Why do you think the American public has been so difficult to reach on this, on this issue? 
I think one of the biggest problems that the United States has versus the UK is the size of our country and then the relative power that each individual state has to implement their own rules. So a lot of things like self-ID and men and women's sports have already been put in place in individual states. But because there isn't, until it's executive order, a single sweeping thing that affects all women in the country, we've had a very hard time organizing on a national level because most of what's happening is happening hyper-locally. And our states are, in some cases, equivalent to the sizes of some countries where these laws are happening. And I think that this makes it very hard to form a collective identity around the idea that we need to fight back against this because it wasn't happening to us collectively before. I do think, though, that we are starting now, hopefully with this executive order, to form this you know, national coalition of women who are seeing that this is a problem that will affect all of us. And this isn't just, oh, individual state laws. This isn't just, oh, that little district court decision. This is something that now is coming from the top, going to every single state. And I I do really hope, I'm, I'm optimistic that this will be a tipping point for, for women in the United States to band together. Mm. Well, over here, so if we had a government order, then we have sort of individual councils, and you mentioned that this is a federal thing, so it would be federal, public, centralised, publicly funded or controlled spaces. So if I was living in Texas uh, or Minnesota or whatever, what can I do on a local level? Do I write to my school district? Do I write to my prison? What do I do? Yeah, so on a local level, it depends a lot on what's actually happening there in your state. There are states that right now are trying to push back by implementing state laws that they hope will either counteract some of this executive order or that they hope will be in conflict to the point that it forces a lawsuit. And then, you know, they hope that conservative justices, which our system is full of right now, will overturn Uh, the executive order in favor of some of these other policies. So depending on what's going on in your state, you can write to your representatives. You can schedule meetings with your representatives. People don't know how easy this is to do. You can call up your state congressman or senator, or even on a national level, like you do have a right to meet with your representatives. You might not always meet exactly with your representative. You might meet with one of their aides, but you can get a meeting and talk to them and explain these issues. And whether you have a conservative or a liberal representative might change the angle that you approach this with, but go into that meeting and be prepared to explain the facts and how this impacts women. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call. A lot of women in my generation, we have serious phone anxiety. We hate to call, but those calls matter a lot more even than a single email. So there's all of this, but then there's also, I think, organizing locally. And I know that this is hard to do during the pandemic, but I think that this is something that has really slipped in the women's movement in the U.S. especially. I can't speak for anywhere else, but in the United States, because everything is online, because we're so far away from each other, it's been very hard to get a real organization happening to get that groundswell that can actually lobby, that can actually influence officials. So if you know even three women in your area that you've, you know, met on Spinster and validated and vetted them, you know, for safety, but then meet up with those people in person and, you know, socially distance, wear your mask, whatever, but 
get organized locally so that when a state law does hit, whether you support it uh, because it's in favor of women's sex-based rights or you want to oppose it because it's against, you are ready to go on those individual actions. Uh, And of course, we need to continue raising the issue and making it clear that this is an important issue, that it's not just conservatives who oppose this, that women on the left, lifelong leftists, people, you know, I, (laughs) three years ago, if you met me, you would define me as a a radical anarchist vegan. Like, you know, women on the left need to show that this is a leftist issue, that women's rights is a issue that applies to all women across the political spectrum. Just keep raising that issue. Don't give in to the branding of of whatever people want to call us. Well, if I'm a right-wing conservative and I go to my right-wing conservative uh, Republican, I'm probably going to have a very easy conversation where he or she agrees with everything I say, and that's great, and, and we can all talk about church on Sunday. However, if I'm on the left and I'm going to see somebody who is a Democrat, who may have he, she pronouns in their bio. Uh, what do you think is the issue that's going to assist you, you know, even get heard? Because I would imagine half the time you talk and that those shutters have gone down and you're just a bigot and a transphobe. So how do, how do you, what is yeah. that, do you think? So I think the angle is not to approach it as being against things, but rather being for things. I think when you're setting up your meeting, you shouldn't even say anything about trans, about gender identity. I think that you can say, um, hi, I'm working on behalf of a group of feminists who are concerned about women's rights under new policies implemented uh, you know, by this legislative body. And I would like to meet with you to discuss the impact on women's rights, on girls' education, and on our gay youth you know, things like that. So you can say things that appeal to liberal sensibilities, but without saying, hi, I want to meet with you because I'm against the transes. Like, you know, (laughs) that's not even the the case, but you know, you don't, yeah, you don't need to frame it that way. You frame it as what you're for. You're for women's rights. You're for LGB rights. You're for freedom of speech, which, you know, until very recently was a very liberal value. So I think that you can frame it this way. And then in your actual meeting, again, frame it as these are my direct concerns about the impacts on women. Bring stories of people who are impacted in that person's constituency. So if hopefully you are a constituent of the representative that you're speaking to, but if you're not, bring a constituent, bring someone from that district who has been impacted. Before you go into these meetings, research what different shelters in that constituents or in that representative's district have implemented gender identity laws. And look, have there been cases of men who have been put in women's shelters, in women's prisons? See what you can find and show there are this many women living in homeless shelters in your district. These women are scared. Tell stories. Uh, You know, representatives don't always connect in numbers because they're thrown numbers all the time, just constantly back and forth at their face. But people connect to stories. So if you have a personal story, share it. If you don't have a story, then find one. You know, find someone's story online. And maybe that story is not from that district, but you can say, 
the policy that you just put in this district affects, you know, 10,000 women or whatever. And here's a story about what happens to women when this policy is put in place. Here's a story about a man who was sexually harassing women in a Fresno homeless shelter, which did happen. And nine different women were affected. So tell these stories. And again, yes, frame it through the perspective of I, I want to protect vulnerable people. I'm not against anyone's rights. I support equal rights for all. I, you know, I personally, I don't support discriminating people for against jobs when there's no reason to discriminate on the basis of sex for that job. So clarify, you know, we really want equal rights and what you're doing, you might not be aware, give the benefit of the doubt, you know, say, I know that you deal with a lot of different policies. So maybe you're not aware about the impact that this policy has. Yeah. Maybe uh, we could encourage people to go on to Spinster and, and maybe do narrative hashtag. So it would be narrative Connecticut or narrative whatever yeah. so that they can pick up stories so that when they contact their representatives. And that's another reason to have really good, trustworthy local working groups, because then you can pull your information and go and see your representative uh, with a whole army of stories. And you get, you get about, you don't get very long, do you? You get quite a, you can pitch them, can't you? Within about sort of two to five yeah. minutes, you can pitch anyone at any time. Otherwise you have to book a meeting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I have personally gone in with a scheduled meeting to a representative and that ended up being about a half hour. Uh, that was a, but yes, that was a scheduled meeting with the aides. So I don't know uh, with COVID regulations about just walking into an oh, yeah. office at this point. I'm not sure how that's working. Oh, without a mom. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think in like normal days, you can theoretically just walk in and get a couple minutes, but you can also try to schedule a meeting and I, and then you can expect maybe 25 to half hour. I mean, before this executive order, so what was it, two years ago, I was in, um, in January uh, in Washington uh, with the women from Wolf talking to uh, representatives or staffers really about what was going on and it was so peculiar to sit with Republicans and there was a Republican guy. He was so lovely. And he was like, my mum's a second wave feminist and I know everything you're talking about. And I totally agree. And he was coming up with all of these brilliant examples. And then you'd go and sit with a Democrat and they'd basically look at you like you just said, I hope your whole family dies. <laughs> oh, that's so true. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that, even Democrats, they do have an obligation to listen to their constituents. They might disagree with you. But what does happen, though, is if they start to feel like their constituency, they're even liberal, they're voters, the people who keep them in office and keep a paycheck and a job coming to them, if they start to feel like that that is slipping away, that's something that they take note of. They don't want to lose their next election. So if you can frame it in a way that this is something that the people who voted for you are concerned about to a degree that they might not vote for you again, then they it might not change their mind, but they might think twice about the next time that a bill needs a sponsor. Or, you know, you don't need to even get someone necessarily to vote against something. If you can get someone to, for one, abstain, but if you can get someone to just not sponsor a bill, because those sponsors matter. And once someone signs on to sponsor a bill, it's very hard for them to publicly backtrack their opinion because it looks like they're flip-flopping. So if you can get someone say, like, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but please just don't sponsor this bill that's coming on. That's actually a really good step because then 
they, it gives them room to have nuance on it versus once they sign their name on as a sponsor, then it's too late. Well, sage advice, good practical examples. Uh, and I do implore everybody to join up to Spinster. It's, it's really quite nice to be able to say the things that we all know to be true that get banned from everywhere else. So thank you very much for that, MK. And thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Always great to chat with you. Cheers. Bye. And if you haven't already, do pop over to spinster.xyz to join up. Um, really grateful to MK for all the work she's doing in allowing women space uh, online to be able to speak about the things that are important to us. Anyway, do uh, like, share and subscribe as always. And don't forget to leave a review. I'm told it does something magic. And if you fancy uh, supporting the fight back against the erasure of women and our rights, there are a myriad of ways that you can do so. Uh, you can find details on biologicalwomenshour.com or standingforwomen.com. But in the meantime, from Biological Women's Hour, thank you for listening. As a special little treat at the end, we have the full Alex Jones uh, rants as an indie folk song as uh, copyrighted by Nick Lutzko. Uh, to enjoy this, it's wonderful. The paradigm of absolute control. And that's why we're just out here doing simple things, pointing out that we're meant to be in nature and be natural. And this is where we find the source that God made to transcend the new world order. And that's why they want to try to keep us out of it. I'm Christian murder scum, marijuana giant death factories keeping babies alive. They're selling their body parts. What more do you need to know about these people? I go out and face these scum. They literally crawl out from under rocks. They have green looking skin and they run around screaming, We love Satan, we wanna eat babies. I have them on video. Hillary's in the creepy weird sixth of man She sleeps in the same room with that creepy weird old woman Whose mother wears a hood over her head What the hell? That woman number one is ugly Imagine how bad she smells, man I'm told her and Obama just stink Obama and Hillary both smell like sulfur It's close to that evil and I feel it go Ah, ah, ah We're such self-centered crap We don't even notice And it's self-rising up against us Millions upon it People of the very worst type And I'm so pissed We're gonna stab your daughter at the mall Muslims, oh.